less fizzy, it's more fuzzy. Wait, so I'm I'm googling this. This is not so a thing. fizzy is when you just open a drink. <laughs> fuzzy is after it's been there for a while. Is there is there like further gradations? Is it just fizzy, fuzzy, flat? I'm, I've never really thought about it that the way. The three Fs of drinks, like or is, it, is there like more of a gradation between fizzy okay. and fuzzy? So like take Topo Chico, right? Uh-huh. Which is very, fizzy. very fizzy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you open it and you drink and it like hits your mouth, it's almost painful how fizzy it fizzy. is. Yes. But if you have, but for example, I just have this cup here of what's it called? Uh, sparkling like soda from the like the sparkling water. LaCroix. Yeah, it's not LaCroix. It's like the off brand, but whatever. Right. Um, and it's been in this cup for a little bit, so it doesn't have the same mouth pain. It's not fizzy. It's now fuzzy. That's not a thing. It's a thing. I, I'm Googling this. This is not a thing. Whatever. Okay. I'm fairly sure it's not a thing. This is wonderful banter. We should be recording all this magic. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to be made fun of for this? No, oh, I would not okay. like to be made fun of for this. Anyway, I'm a, I'm a stranger to this country. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do this thing. Okay, well, listener, oh, what gosh. you have been listening to is... <laughs> have you been recording the whole time? <laughs> oh, yeah. Have you really? Yeah. I'm so proud. Yeah, I got. I figured the banter was so good that I had to turn I it on realize mid, you're recording. I'm mid-conversation. Deeply, okay, this is terrifying. Yeah. That you yeah. could turn that on at any moment and we would never know. Absolutely any moment. My, I have the power, gentlemen. Wow. All right, well, listener, welcome <laughs> to Classical Stuff You Should Know. I dropped you right there in the middle of a conversation because it was just... I thought if I was going to learn about fizzy versus fuzzy versus flat... That the listener should also learn about fizzy, fuzzy, and flat. My name is AJ Hannenberg. I am joined by a Canadian immigrant who applies <laughs> the adjective of fuzz to his drinks when he's even when they're not moldy. That would be Graham Donaldson. I feel like it makes sense if you think about it. And Thomas Magby, who correctly mm-hmm. identifies drinks. I just feel betrayed by the ability to turn that recorder on and off. This is terrifying. Why is that betrayal? I mean, I, I can always know. get rid of it later if you just guys like, want me to. Having a conversation, just us, and now it's our millions of listeners who are tuning in for this. We have millions now. <laughs> hey. I feel like that's that's got to be a change. Welcome. Wow. No, that's exactly right. Hey, all you brand new. <laughs> Wait, what are you talking about? One point nine million <laughs> that got us to two. Great to hear about that's awesome. you. That's awesome. Glad you're here. <clears throat> so this is classical stuff you should know. We are a podcast that aims to bring the classical world to you, and classical is kind of weirdly defined. Basically, we shoot for old stuff. That's kind of how we do it. My general policy is like 1800s and before. Yep. But, you know, there's there's all kinds of definitions about classical. I like to stick to the Greeks if I can. Greeks and medievals and that sort of thing. You know, you have a safe margin. If it's if it's right. pre-1700, I feel really solid about it. But isn't today's topic like 19th century? Yeah. 19th, it's, 20th it's, century? it's creeping up there. But it's, it's on, it's a, proposed by two men who were classical thinkers. Okay. Put it that way. Yeah. So you're like a, they're like classical surrogates. Yeah. They did the classical work and then you're just sort of. Yeah. Taking from them. I'm the I like that. That works. All right. So today is led by Mr. Donaldson. So today, gentlemen, we are going to be talking about um, a economic theory put out by G.K. Chesterton, who we've talked about on the podcast before, a Catholic thinker in the 19th, sorry, yeah, in the 19th century in England, and his friend Hilaire Belloc, also a Catholic thinker. Uh, in the 19th century in England. Wasn't uh, Hilaire Belloc what uh, Gandalf yelled at the... Uh, <laughs> That's the name of the, the thing. The Balrog? Yeah. Hilaire <laughs> Belloc. That's probably it. Uh-huh. Um, right. yeah. So two. So they were uh, Catholic thinkers, and they uh, had this way of thinking about uh, economics that came out for, uh, of a couple of papal, I guess they're bulls or missiles, encyclical? which both of those things are, are encyclicals. All three of the bulls and missiles sound awesome. Like if you put out a, (laughs) I don't know, it just sounds. What should we call your letters? 
Bulls. <laughs> it just sounds very aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth um, wrote an encyclical called Rerum Novarum, and I don't know enough Latin to know what that translates to. Um, but it was one of these encyclicals. Rights and duties. Oh, there you go. Rights and duties. I think in um, response to kind of the growing industrialization and kind of the growth pains that were coming with industrialization and these new ideas that were floating around Europe, especially around communism and socialism. And then, of course, 100 years later, the rise of fascism and sort of uber-nationalism. And so um, Pope Leo XIII writes this document, and um, also Pope Leo XI has another document later taking up these themes, and then Pope John Paul II in the 90s has a third document that kind of takes up this question of what is man vis-a-vis money and institutions? This is kind of the idea. Well, what? Um, and from one of those documents, I can't remember which one, um, there is the, the great line that um, – um, markets are in service to man, man is not in service to markets. And I think that's John Paul II's um, quote. So there was, and, and all of these sort of documents get crystallized under the Wikipedia article. Of, no, sorry. If you're, <laughs> that's, if you're that's, trying what to, just, that's what I just pulled if up. If you're so, trying to figure yeah. out the, uh, the, the, how to, yeah, the sort of the, the category for this, it's either known as Catholic social teaching. It's kind of what it's often referred to. And you get variants of this Catholic social teaching that pop up in the Southern agrarian writings uh, here in the U.S. Um, I guess you would say that um, – shoot, who's that farmer guy we like? What's his name? Wendelberry. 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 Even though he's not Catholic, um, he sort of maybe fits into that. You also have this um, Dorothy Day and these Catholic social movements that happen. Um, uh, they're all part of this. But G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc uh, devised this idea, and it's more of a um, – sort of a prediction of what state capitalism will do over time and sort of the history of money uh, looking back. So in order to understand this, I'm going to like sort of put out their thought, especially Hilaire Belloc's idea of of this, and then we'll kind of like, I don't know, I want to get your reactions on whether or not you think that this is crazy talk or not. It's crazy talk. No, no, we're not there yet. Oh, sorry. Um, Just point at me when you want me to say it's crazy talk. Okay, cool. Okay. So um, the first sort of thing we need to understand is this I- is the the Catholic idea in in Rerum Novarum of subsidiary. That's crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were scratching your eyebrows. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Not, yeah, not that funny. was not the signal. I thought so. Was. Subsidiary. Uh-huh. So subsidiary is kind of this idea that a a community of higher order should not infringe on the com- on the freedoms of communities of lower order. Uh, so the actual quote from Rerum Novarum is. A community of higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order. And then he goes on to say, but that it should support it. So rich dudes shouldn't meddle in my life? It's not so much rich dudes. It's more like... um, So the president, nice. (laughs) If you are trying to set up your neighborhood softball league for your kids, you don't need... The, you shouldn't need the city to tell you what to do or the state. You, shouldn't, you don't need the, t- the state of Texas to regulate your neighborhood softball league. Um, that's kind of the idea. So the idea of subsidiary is decisions should be made at the lowest communal level that they can be made um, reasonably. I know it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, loose term, and there's probably a lot of argumentation that can come from that. Well, I think, um, I think the argumentation would just be what – what, is what con- yeah, yeah, what constitutes a decision to go to which level? Yeah. Um, 
Um, so I, the classic one that gets brought up a lot in these conversations is the idea of the education of children. Mm-hmm. Um, so parents should be allowed to educate their children the way that they see fit and that a higher level of community, so let's say the school board, um, shouldn't be allowed to say you cannot learn these kinds of things in your family, right? Or you have to send your kid and your kid has to sit through this kind of lecture or this kind of series of lectures or this this curriculum in school. You have to do it. Um, that would be going against this principle of subsidiary that that the 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 lower or the smaller community rights should trump the bigger community's control. Because families can make that decision, they should make yes. that decision. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if there are certain things. So what if, I'm just throwing this out. So what if, like, are there certain things that as a country we want everyone to be taught? Is there not a place then for the federal role to say, you know, everyone should learn math as a part. Everyone should learn science. Um yeah, good is question. it a legitimate decision if someone says, "Actually, I don't really want"? I guess the math. legitimate question is like, uh, at what level of the subsidiary should that decision be made? Uh, do, is it federal? And if it's federal, why not go one step higher and say like it's a UN Declaration mm, of Human Rights sure. that every student learns, you know, Singapore Algebra. math or yeah, whatever? Yeah, sure. yeah. So it, it's just it, um, it is a, in its essence, a fear of. Not, not so much a fear, but it is pointing out the problems of when something becomes a centralized mm-hmm. idea. So when, some, when things become centralized, um, um, you start to get sort of these imbalances or you – essentially what the document says is you start to infringe on the natural freedoms of human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm just laying out the argument. Yeah, I, don't, sure. I don't even know myself how I feel about it. Um, you like it. I'm sympathetic to it. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I do like it. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of, but then, yeah, but, but families don't get to make decisions about the sewer systems of your neighborhood. Like one family doesn't get to make that decision. Um, um, in that sense, the city probably should, because it's an interconnected system that the entire city is, is sort of responsible for. Right. And you can't even make it at the neighborhood level. Cause if one neighborhood decides, decides to dump all their junk into the sewer system, it's going to affect every other neighborhood. That's right. Um, but it is kind of silly if you have the, f- if you have the federal government telling Austin how to do their sewer system, right. um, maybe they can have right. Re- maybe the federal government can have sort of guidelines, but to actually have somebody, you know, to actually pick who like manages. Exactly. The sewer, yeah, exactly. The 500, system. 700 miles away, right. making these decisions for the city. Uh, that, that's just sort of a silly, inefficient thing. Okay. They should stay out of our crap. They should stay out of our crap. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the, now this is a really, this <laughs> is, this is going to yeah. be a really, um, um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm still laughing proud of that before we started recording you guys. Graham was like, this is really complicated. I'm going <laughs> to need Thomas. I'm going to need your help on this. Cause oh, you didn't uh, get that part? I didn't get oh, that part. Oh, okay. And I was like, hey, you guys, I found a feather in my shirt. <laughs> it was just that classical moment like, my cat's breath smells like cat food. You know, <laughs> oh, sorry. Andrew, I didn't mean to ruffle your feathers on that one. <laughs> but, okay. Um, so then Hilaire Belloc takes this idea of subsidiary and he thinks about it in terms of, okay, if – if we want to be skeptical and concerned of the centralization of any of things, um, he applies that to the idea of economics. And so, and this is where Heller, Heller Bellock gets kind of, um, um, he's one of those people where 
um, free market capitalists think he's a socialist and socialist thinks he's like a free market capitalist. So because he's one of those people that other people think is on the opposite side, already he should be a a person of interest. We should already (laughs) be interested in him because if he's saying something that sort of both of these camps are accusing him of holding an opposite view, Mm -hmm. then he's doing something interesting. Mm. But that means that I have to be nuanced about this. So as far as Hilaire Belloc is concerned, um, well, we just define some terms. Socialism. Uh, So socialism or collectivism, uh, that sort of is a bigger umbrella, is the idea that economic decisions are made at the level of government and that government is in control of the means of production. So um, nationalizing the railroad, Mm -hmm. nationalizing oil industry. um, uh, What what are other sort of examples of, I mean, the most extreme one being like, like communism. That's what I, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So communism is, is sort of this extreme collectivism where the state is in control of of all means of production. Um, and then weirdly, on the opposite side of that, so if, if communism is far left, fascism is far right, but fascism is collectivism just under a different name, because right. it's still the state control, but it's, I don't know, what's the difference? It, there isn't one in, is it even supposed to be state control in communism? Like it's, in theory, it's like no control. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean... So, Different name for the same thing happening is what exactly. Right. So it's it's sort of strong centralized um, control over the means of production by the government. Right. Doesn't matter how that government comes into power, whether it's an elected government or whether it's a strongman government. If the government is in control of the means of production, that is a collective socialism. And then on the other hand, uh, and this is where Hilaire Belloc kind of – so I think most most free market capitalists look at them and they're like, yeah, that's that sounds terrible. That sounds right. inefficient. That doesn't sound very smart. Hilaire Belloc looks at the other end and he says capitalism, sort of free market capitalism the way that we have it, is only a transitional state. It is something that um, uh, is moving towards an end goal, and when it hits that end goal – it's going to be another kind of collectivism. It won't be one under, under state control, but it'll be one under um, either you'll just have like, like five companies right. in the yeah. world that own everything. Yeah. And like Amazon has bought all of its competitors and or whatnot. <clears throat> and, and Google runs the Internet and Facebook runs the media or whatever. Um so like a an oligarchy of yeah or Pluto so I, and then also the idea of money so money uh, the actual capital itself is going to flow into fewer and smaller and smaller hands um, so that's called when you when all of the the capital is controlled by a very small amount of people it's called a plutocracy mm-hmm. so plutocracy is you know give me a give me a small number ten percent one percent one tenth of one percent owns X amount of the capital, 90% of the capital. I'm starting to sound like Bernie Sanders. You are a little bit, yeah. <laughs> For too long, 10% wow. has been one-tenth of 10%. Now that's, you're really sounding yeah. like That's pretty good, <laughs> Sanders. Yeah, I know. Mr. Calling. Um, yeah. To be Bernie can, Sanders? Can you oh do my, Christopher Walken? Can um, you do Bernie Sanders as Christopher Walken? I don't, I don't think I can. <laughs> I believe in you. Mm. But I did. I got a fever. <laughs> I did recently rewatch um, the Christopher Walken uh, Fat Boy Slim music uh-huh. video. Yeah, as you should. Oh man, yeah. I did thing, too. I fr- as I was, wa- I was watching that maybe like two weeks ago, and I just had that moment of like, how did this get how made? This, yeah, totally. Did, anyway, that's a whole other whole other bag of worms. 
What? So Bag of worms. Um, the idea being that um, so in in socialism, your ability, the individual's ability to control their own means of production is taken away from them. Yes. The state now runs the factory. The state now um, runs the economy and tells you what your job is or whatever. On the other end, you have a similar kind of problem because you don't – the means of control and so with capital it has been sort of siphoned into a small place. It's not so much the state that has it, but it's small groups of individuals, whether that's monopolies or whether that's just like unfathomably wealthy people that actually have the vast majority of money that can do – that you need in order to do endeavors, right? Um, so um, – So both of these things become centralized problems. So he makes the argument in The Servile State, um, uh, which is a book that he wrote in 1912. So we're still under the 100-year mark, so I'm okay with that. Uh, I know. Just (laughs) barely. My next episode Um, will not be, so here we are. Is that... um, Capitalism, the way that he sees it, is an incredibly is incredibly fragile um, because it has as as capitalism is successful, it removes it, it basically makes the game harder for everybody to play. Um, we, criticisms are coming. Uh, I can't make That's it. fine. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. but as, as something gets more successful, it gets harder for people um, uh, harder for people to uh, to play, especially if 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 money is becoming more centralized. And means of production becoming more centralized. So um, he lays out a um, this belief that as time goes on, <clears throat> um, people are going to be more um, um, beholden to companies and the company's wages in order to survive. Um, so you're basically you have uh, the fact that you are. Uh, yeah, you're beholden to the companies for wages. You're, I mean, wage slave is probably the extreme way of saying it. Um, but you need you need the flow of money from the owners to you, the laborer, to you, the worker. I mean, I'm there. Yeah, I don't have my own farm. Exactly. Um, so he's so uh, Hilaire Belloc's and G.K. Chesterton's idea is that free uh, economic freedom for human beings is to have, and this is why it's called distributism, which makes it sound like socialism because yes. they're distributing, which yep. is it's sort of a terrible branding name problem. We need to re- rename it Rebrand, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the basic idea is, is that the um, human beings are more free insofar as human beings have direct control over their means of production. And that means either land for you know, back when they were writing this agrarian farming. But that also means the owning of tools for being a blacksmith or, or doing anything and having capital in order to to start up your little, um, your, your enterprise, whatever it is. I guess in modern equivalents of this would be something along the lines of um, – kind of like the wave of independent contracting positions that there are. Right. The, uh, the internet has given like people be, the ability to freelance or um, um, Airbnb your house. Um, these kinds of things have distributist ideas or, or, or can be sort of looked at through that lens behind them. So um, um, 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this means of production thing because uh, uh, Hilaire Belloc uses an example from history to talk about how this how this happened. So um, he starts the servile state with the question, why was there less slavery in the Middle Ages? That's kind of his idea. Why was there less actual? And what he means by slavery is legal contracts between workers and and uh, uh, sort of the owners. Like slavery was an engine that drove the Roman Empire. And then he says, we then, slavery beca- uh, began to again become more potent and formalized in what? 15th, 16th, 17th century. Then you have the transatlantic mm-hmm. slave trade and then you have all those that sort of terrible inhumanity. And he says, how come in the Middle Ages... Now, there were slaves in the Middle Ages, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, if you look, you know, if you do a history of the Middle Ages, there's still slavery. Um, there are, you know, uh, saints who were traded as slaves who, you know, preached the gospel to their pagan masters, and then they became Christians. And all that. so there was slavery. But um, Hilaire, uh, Belloc's reasoning is that it was less institutionalized as it was in the Roman Empire, and then was also less institutionalized as it was after the end of the Middle Ages. And he's sort of asking the question, why? What was going on? Weren't people that, working land that wasn't theirs, like the monastery or church would own land? Exactly. And yeah. then like the people of that community would work that land. And I, I get the details wrong, but so there was some amount that they owed. So since they didn't own the land and they were getting <clears> stuff from <throat> the land, they had to pay a certain amount. Yeah. Like, so if they were harvesting grain, then they would have to get, you know, 10 bushels of grain a week or whatever. That's right. And then they give that to the uh, community. The monastery. Yeah. And then the owners done. of the land. Yeah. And then they're done after that. So, yeah, and that's kind of the idea. Now, lots of people criticize Belloc by saying that he's kind of this medieval apologist that says everything was rosy and great in the Middle Ages. And, and we are sort of living in this, like, you know, this feel-good anarchy agrarian community. It's not. There's still right. there's still laborers and there's right. still owners. There's still have. There's still have-nots. They didn't have toilet paper or peanut butter. So fair. Nothing yes. can be that good. Can't be that great. <laughs> yes, fair. Um, but he says Just a jelly sandwich. <laughs> Who wants that? Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. Do they even have jelly? I don't know. They probably did. Oh uh, yeah, I'm sure preserves they did. Mm-hmm. Preserves. Yeah, for sure. Sugar's expensive. Or wait, when did canning come about? Man, I don't know. Way later. That's our yeah, next classical stuff later. episode is going to be on canning. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, kitchen. Kitchen stuff. <laughs> but anyway, kitchen so stuff he's you should know. kitchen stuff. <laughs> yeah. But he. So Hilaire Belloc puts out the um, the the idea of okay, this is how kind of the medieval social order worked is you did have owners, landowners, and for the vast majority of places, it was the monasteries. Mm -hmm. The monasteries were the actual caretakers of the land. Um, And you also had noble lords who were caretakers of the land. And there was a weak centralized power in the kings. So you did have kings, but they weren't anything like the centralized powers of nation states that we have today. Right. Everything was like basically handshakes and goodwill. And, and as you listen to the Plantagenet series, you know that every king's problem was he needed to have the lords on his side. And then the lords needed to have, and then they needed to have the church on the side. And it was this whole sort of interconnected network of power, um, power yeah. as opposed to a hierarchy of power. And I think that's a really important distinction. Mm-hmm. Is that it was more network than hierarchy. Anyway, the king was in charge, but if you if he couldn't get anyone to come to his backing, the nobles could rebel. That's and right. Put somebody else in in there instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So you had owners of land, but it was distributed amongst many, many, many more monasteries and small little ownership groups than after the dissolution of the monarchies in. 
Henry VIII. So this was sort of his idea. So um, that so you have the owners of the land are these monasteries. Let's just use monasteries as a as, as sort of the simplified version of it. And they are groups of people that, whether or not they believed it or whether or not they did, they have taken some kind of vow of poverty. Yep. Now, as we know, not every monastery held to that, and they accumulated vast wealth, but probably not as vast wealth as we kind of would think of. Would think of right. be- compared not, to the kind of vast wealth that we have now. Wealth. It's yeah. not yeah, yeah. They're not Bezos. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so you have these monasteries who have taken this vow of poverty and then have vast tracts of land and they accumulated more land as people died and, and gave up, gave their land to it. Um, and um, so they, the, the monasteries had agreements with the local workers. They, they, had, they didn't have enough monks to work the land. And so you had local um, uh, farmers who lived on the land, raised their families on there. And yeah, Thomas, like you said, they had to pay a tithe to the church. So for simplicity's sake, let's just say that the tithe ended up being around two days of work, as, uh, and then you had five days of work after that. That's kind of pretty much how it worked itself out. Um, the, tithe with, the tithe was 10%, or the tithe was, was whatever it was. It probably varied from monastery to monastery and lord to lord, and if it was more, people got ticked, and if it was less then the monastery would lose money or whatever. Um, so let's just say it was two days a week. So two days a week, the work that you do, the bed, the fruits of that labor go to the monastery. And then whatever uh, you, be- you can get from the five days a week was yours to keep. This was essentially how um, the Middle Ages worked. Now, those pe- what, you didn't own the land, the monastery owned the land, but you essentially controlled the means of your own family's survival. If you worked harder or more efficiently or took better care of your tools, and uh, then you got to reap those benefits. If you were, if you didn't, then um, then you were in trouble. Um, okay, so for Hilaire Belloc, the big um, change happens not in the Industrial Revolution, which is a lot of how a lot of history textbooks sort of talk about the rise of capitalism. They say, "Oh, the Industrial Revolution, and we got the cotton gin," and at least that's how I was taught it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, "No, the big change happened." when Henry VIII dis- dissolved the monasteries. Hmm. So when Henry VIII hmm. became Anglican, or became Anglican, started the Anglican church, right. so he divorced his wife. Um, <laughs> sorry, to, I, no, I'm poking good. fun at Thomas's Anglicanism. Yeah. Um, uh, um, when he was, um, I thought he, an Anglican was a seabird. <laughs> that sounds about right. No, I'm kidding. I don't know what um, He dissolved the monasteries, so the monasteries were now seen as a threat. Uh-huh. And... He, so then for a period of time, the king of England actually owned all of the land that he dissolved the monasteries under. So he dissolved the monasteries and took all the land under the crown. And the tolerance for, for crown control over this was a little bit higher because people were like, oh my goodness, we have a strong king, a strong England. Um, you know, this is a good thing. And then as Henry needed political favors from his lords, he began to distribute the land to nobles and to, and to, to people that he needed to curry favors from. When everything sort of shook itself out, you had, you know, thousands and thousands of little parcels of monastery uh, land uh, uh, in these parishes that had been pushed, it had been sort of conglomerated into a handful of giant tracts of land now owned by um, lords. And I think um, I remember reading, I think this was, I remember reading in, in Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People that something like 11 lords or 15 lords owned like 
60% of the farmable land in England at some time. So you have this you have this extreme decentralization or this, this extreme centralization of of power. Now everything would be all well and good if everybody who worked on that land could have the same deal with the lord. Right. But it didn't end up working that way. Um, and so as so the, okay so that was for Hillary Belloc that was this first big problem um, is that um, less people controlled the means of production so more people were beholden to those owners does this make sense yes okay so generally if you had like a freedom index the freedom index has gone way further down because you know um, um, peasant AJ now no longer has to have a, a face-to-face meeting with the local monastery where he can figure out what his what their relationship is. He now has a relationship with a lord mm-hmm. who is in parliament, who is no not anywhere near his farmland. And so AJ's either shooting in the dark or he's now working with a bureaucracy. He's now no he's not working with with the local, local yeah. the local government, if you want to put it that way, Isn't, okay. Yeah. So for Hilary Belloc, that's a, that was a big shift. Um, and then the next big shift comes when, when yes, you now have this rise of industrialization, and instead of having basically serfs who, the rosiest way you could talk about serfs were independent contractors. That's that's probably putting too nice <laughs> of a generous, yeah. that's a very yeah, generous way of putting real it. Sweet. Um, but they at least had uh, control, whether you know, still uh, pretty rudimentary. But they still had control over what they uh, over their um, uh, their means of production. This kind of shifts, uh, as Hilary Belloc's argument is, when people uh, were moving into the idea of wages and salary. That's the next big change for Belloc is, is and then we're moving into this idea of salary. So did the Lord start paying out a salary? At this? It, it's still the same setup. It's still the point. same setup. You give your two bushels or your two days worth mm-hmm. of whatever to the Lord. Mm-hmm. You still have the other five days. So then is the Industrial Revolution where wages? Yeah, so yeah, the Industrial okay. Revolution are where wages come in and then you've got this new way so that people are, are um, the individual is no longer seen as a member of the parish who works but an individual scene as a, as a, someone who has labor that they that they trade their time yep. and their labor for cash. Yeah. Um, and so, um, um, so the more that the more that the system is set up where the person is tr- is being paid a wage as opposed to them controlling their means of production. Um, as, for, as far as Hilary Belloc is concerned, the more fragile that system becomes. The free man can refuse, this is a quote from one of the books, the free man can refuse his labor in order to bargain. And we, and that still exists today. Right. Like if we wanted to, we could refuse our labor to this school or we could say, I'm not going to teach. I want a better salary. And they can say, all right, we'll give you a better salary or we'll just find somebody else who can do your job. We do have that bargaining power. Um, um, but um, Hilaire Belloc's fear is that as time goes on and as capitalism moves forward and more and more money go into these companies or go into these individuals, there's going to be a reform movement in nations. And the reform movement is basically going to take, uh, what Hilaire Belloc says the reform movement is going to take is people are going to say, um, the rich need to serve the poor because the rich have all of the means of production and they have um, 
and they have all of the capital. They're the one, and then the rich say, yeah, we're taking, we're the ones taking the risk with our money. We should right. be the ones getting the reward for it. And then the vast majority of people are going to say, we want to work for you because we want, you know, your money so that we can survive. We need our wages. Um, and we need you to give us jobs. Um, and the rich say, okay. Um, and then there's, so, you know, there's a, there's the push and pull back and forth where either the, the rich say, no, we will, we'll try to find whoever can do this job for the cheapest. Um, and, but Hilaire Belloc's vision of the future is that eventually laws will be put into place that the, that the means of production holders, those who hold the means of production written into law have to take care of everybody who is a wage earner. Um, so um, this could take tons of different ways that this could play itself out. This could be lifelong contracts, mm -hmm. which we don't see, but every now and then you hear it floated um, like in Silicon Valley or something. Um, uh, I will, I don't know. This is, have you heard of any no. of these things? No. I, they were made fun of in, uh, what was the movie? Sorry to bother you. Yeah, sorry to bother you. Yeah, <clears throat> they were. There was a what was the? It was called Home Good something. <laughs> I'm, good try, I'm, home, pulling, I'm trying to pull it up. Home away? No, not home yeah, away. Uh, that's a real thing. Yeah, that's um, a real thing. It was basically you. You signed yourself into, I don't know, work slavery. But right. you you didn't get any wages. But you they would provide a home and food and everything else that you needed in return for your work every day. Yeah. So I mean that is maybe. But the now movie, the at movie the point, was critical of that. Yeah, maybe yeah. Now, now at the point that is that's a, a thing that is is and I think it's rightly made fun worry of. Worry free. That was mm -hmm. worry free. But worry there's free. also yeah. the I think the you know that's not the only form it could take. Right now there's <clears throat> there are folks proposing a ninety percent tax on the top one percent. Mm -hmm. Right, ninety percent is an incredible amount of money. Yeah. So that is so the and so the, the government effectively so that's, becomes that's the one to yeah. make sure they're serving the low. So there's two ways about it. There's the socialist way, which is the redistributing of wealth, where you take the money from those that have the money and you and you redistribute it to those who don't have the money through some sort of means, mm -hmm. whether that's just actually cutting a check for people, uh, or that's the what's it called the um, the uh, um, where they're going to guarantee an income, guaranteed income, that idea. Oh, oh uh, universal, universal, universal basic universal yeah, basic yeah. income UBI. is yeah. another idea of this. I mean, what are the so then Belloc would say, okay, what are the or Hilaire Belloc would say, what are the strings attached with that universal basic income? Do you have to do? Do you have to clock certain amount of hours of work for the government? Um, do you Isn't have that also, that's also a proposal of guaranteeing jobs? Exactly. So yeah. of guaranteeing jobs. So these things are are workarounds or these things are tr are trying to figure out what do you do with all of these people who need to survive by wages mm. when and everybody who can sort of and then the, and those who can supply those wages eventually Hilaire Bellock says are going to be forced and probably I don't know rightly so but logically so are going to be forced to play to have some sort of system where they guarantee work for everybody, mm -hmm. and those people give that work because if they don't, the thing's going to kind of fall apart. So he still includes that. That's late stage. Uh, this is a Marxist term, but mm -hmm. that's late stage capitalism to mm -hmm. block that you'd have to guarantee those jobs, like from to avoid social unrest. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 You guarantee those jobs to avoid social unrest, yeah. and so then he says at some point it's going to be enshrined into um, into actual law. What's the term for it? Um, um, 
I guess just law. Yeah. Uh, um, he's got he's got a, a specific term for it. Um, but um, and then he says when that when that thing happens, now you've kind of set up people who are whether whichever mechanism it's from, there is a legal obligation between owners and sellers of their labor. And he says that is essentially servility, which is why it's called the servile state or slavery under another term. And he sa- and so um, he says whether this is coming through the means of a centralized government control, which would be socialism, or some sort of plutocracy or some sort of um, uh, uh, monopolies, um, which would be a corporation control, he says either way um, – the move is going to be towards some sort of social contract between those where people are giving their labor for a guaranteed basic income or guaranteed wages. And that's uh, and then you've sort of institutionalized this this kind of slavery. He says, so then the opposite of that is people having the ownership of their own uh, means of production. So um, I mean the universal basic income, you're basically saying you are then therefore a slave to the state. Yeah, or it now becomes a tool. Because you are entirely dependent upon them. It now becomes a tool of coercion because do criminals get universal basic income? Do, um, you know, if you get caught in possession of an illegal drug, do you get, you know, then the question is who doesn't get it? And if if the giving and the taking away is is either centralized thing, either your employer, uh, your mega employer, or the government, well, now you've you've got people who are kind of um, having to play ball or be destitute. Mm-hmm. But if this is a thing that people are proposing, so if they want that relationship to the state, does Bellock go on and say what the matter with that is? Or does he take it as self-evident that this is like a horrible place to be? I think he takes it as self-evident. It's a horrible place to be. Um, uh, so are we in crazy town then? If like that universal basic income and job guarantees are being proposed, like, uh, oh, we're in crazy town. Okay. Or at least uh, Hillary Bellock would say we're in crazy okay. town. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, he he was he's so like he was concerned. Um, like he was raising a stink when Parliament in England made it illegal to collect firewood in <laughs> in, like, in the, like the nationalized parks. Yeah. Right. Because um, he's you know the uh, and um, um, hunting guinea fowl uh-huh. was was illegal it, because it's now government private property hmm. and he's and so i mean like yeah so uh he says if 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 people who live in the country can't just go into the woods and get firewood right um because it's now owned by the government and, the, and how do they get firewood do they have to pay for it do they have to do they get like state given firewood that's coming out of their taxes so firewood he's rations so then yeah, yeah fire right. ra- it's rationed so then he says this is again breaking this rule of subsidiary why is a centralized federal government trying to get us regulate our firewood and I, I was going to ask if he is more in favor of like farming employment. I, does all this apply now when, so like you're, you're focused yeah. on land yes. as the main asset. Well, land doesn't really have the same value now. I, I forget the exact number, but I think it's fewer than 3% of Americans exactly. are farmers. Like how does this apply when your main piece of capital isn't, land yeah so or yeah well or this is this yeah. is a great great point so then the question is okay well what are some kind of like more modern examples of things that are are moving towards distribute moving towards a decentralization than towards a centralization Etsy. and yeah on so these yes exactly 
I, I mean, like weird, weirdly enough, it, Etsy. Yeah, you know, it's it's any anything that gives yep. someone the ability to do make their own, make their own thing exactly. and sell their own thing without interference from the government. Although you do have to pitch a little bit towards Etsy, but that'd be the equivalent of a market, right? Exactly. Right. So and it's uh, so any of the internet has afforded lots of these things. So another example is Airbnb. Um, uh, us, if, mm-hmm. like we are producing doing this a, podcast. Exactly. We doing could, a podcast. I mean, we could choose to monetize. We haven't yet, but. AJ uh, does DJing on the side, so mm-hmm. yes. you own your, I mean, and you own all the equipment that you use for that. Well, that's government-owned speakers. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. Never mind. <laughs> My wife freelances as a graphic designer yeah. and owns the computer. And um, But yes, you're right. So then there are these sorts of things. Uh, and then there are other ones like open source technology mm-hmm. like Linux and GitHub and Python. All of these things are not, Blender, yeah. are not centralized companies. They are decentralized platforms that are run basically by people who... I mean, even Wikipedia are doing it, like, f- for what? The joy of it? I mean... Basically, yeah. Basically, are doing it for the utility of it, essentially. Yeah. Oh, man, now, Wikipedia. So the uh, at Veritas, we have this thing called Morning Moment where we look at art with our students, and I realized I can edit any page to say anything ever, and one of the art pieces had very little information, and so I added that... It was recently sold to art collector Thomas Magby. <laughs> That's wonderful. For really? $3 million. That's and awesome. he keeps it in his home and has showings every December. Is it still up there? No, I okay. took it down within minutes because I felt really guilty and I was afraid of getting banned forever. So, uh, I saw the, so there was one where students changed it and they said that an art thief stole it. And I think, I forget if I was the art thief or I was the like the fence that bought it. Anyway, it was very funny. Did they put it, that might have been the day that I did it and then was they it, put it back up after class. Can I say, was it the Gleaners? Is that, do you remember the name of the art piece? I think it yeah, was the Gleaners. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Funny. They, they went back and did it? Yep. Yeah, no, yeah, for 100%. I have the no screenshot. No way. Yeah, it's great. No I love way. it. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so here's another quote from Servile State that Belloc says, okay, here's like kind of the definition of what all of this, this has worked up to. So, yes, this is the definition of Servile State. It's an arrangement of society in which so considerable a number of families or individuals are um, constrained by positive law to labor for the advantage of other families and individuals as to stamp the whole community with the mark of such labor. Hmm. So in other words, 98% of everybody is working for the 2% of people, and the 2% are paying the 98% and it is something that has been codified into law. That's, that's the word, oh. positive law. Yeah. It's been codified into positive law for this to happen for the good of the whole. And he says that is a slavery under a different name. That's, a, that's sort of this servility. Now, of course, we're not there. You right. can quit your job if you want. Um, and so the yeah, And if I own Amazon, I can still fire everyone and be done, right? Bezos could shut the he whole shut thing the, down. Exactly. He could shut... If he wanted to, as now, a majority shareholder. that's a really interesting question because... He's not the owner. He's, um, isn't he the majority shareholder? I don't know. If I, I can look that up. But the CEO is not... Just to complicate this, since it's publicly traded, yes. anyone can become an owner of Anybody it. can become an owner yeah. of it. Oh, well, if Amazon stock, you got to have quite a chunk of change to become an owner, but... I'm, I'm pulling it up. Sorry. So, yeah. So, it, so then there are good... Uh, yeah. So then we're raising sort of the good counterpoint points to this. So the um, now Belloc was not an idealist. He he knew that this was what he was talking about was um, it was it's it's more of a like guiding principle than it is a um, a utopia that he says we hope to get to. The guiding principle is we should enact policies and we should have um, societies set up to maximize the 
to maximize the ability for individuals to have control of their means of production. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, so uh, Chesterton always said this, uh, you know, uh, it's two acres and a cow. So yes, mm-hmm. Thomas, to talk about your sort of agrarian ideas, but um, but modern ideas of what this would be. Yeah, we've already talked about like being a freelancer. Um, there's other. So there's another company. They do. Um, they run Basecamp. Do you know what Basecamp is? Yes. Yeah. What's Basecamp, Thomas? Um, um, sorry, I just pulled up. So I think if I'm reading this right, Bezos owns about a 20% of the company, somewhere between 18 and 20%. Well, if, then here's the fun case study. Let's say that all the shareholders, that, every single yeah, shareholder yeah. of Amazon got together and you're like, you guys, this was a great run. We're done. This was awesome, yeah. but we're done. Do you think that we as like a, uh, uh, economy in a country would just, do you think, I guess the question is, would you think that the government would just allow that to happen? No. Amazon being so deeply entrenched into people's lives that there wouldn't be some kind of way to try to keep it around. It would stick around because somebody else would want to buy it. That's the, so my question is, what do you mean by shut it down? Because essentially they would sell their shares. And if, you know, 20% of the company was for sale, the shares would plummet, but then someone would buy it. And then like the, the company would continue to run. Mm-hmm. Like the ownership is separate from the operation in a weird way. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of one of the, another one of these criticisms criticism, yeah. of distributism is that ownership and operation are are kind of separate. Yeah. Um, so there are six hundred thousand Amazon employees. So like the government would, I think that's a worldwide number. But yeah, so the government would care about that being shut down. Yes. Um, so I don't know about forcing it to stay open. I don't know how that would work. But the thing is, as so as it gets bigger or as it becomes more successful, yeah. it becomes more deeply entwined in the social fabric. Yes. And it will, I mean, it's essentially kind of like the too big to fail argument all over again, is that sure. is that if something happens to it, mismanagement or whatever, it'll get bailed out or it'll get saved. And then because, if, because you know, if we don't, we lose too many jobs. People need those jobs because they need their wages. Um, so th- this is the thing that kind of Belloc is uncomfortable with. Um Shoot, what was I our train of thought? And you asked for a definition of something, and I forget what the something was. Sorry. Listeners are going to be, like, yelling at their... Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember what the train right of thought now. was before we were saying... Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, the base camp. Um, That's for, like, group, um, groups working together. Um, yeah, so yeah. base camp is a software, yeah. and it makes and it, uh, it, it makes uh, collaboration a lot easier. Yeah. Okay, well, the guy that, de- that made base camp uh, wrote a really great book called Rework. Mm-hmm. Um, and his idea... And with base camp, they have something like... 15, 20 employees, and they've kind of actively um, kept, it that size. kept it that size and fought against growth. Yep. And so those 20 employees own, it's not a co-op, but everybody owns that company. Mm-hmm. All those 20 employees own one twentieth of the company or whatever. Maybe it's distributed in different ways. So in, in this kind of weird way, this is similar to the agrarian farmer where the more work that he puts in and the healthier of the company, the more he's kind of, he's worth because he owns this company that, that is making this kind of money. Um, uh, the owner of this, or the, uh, the CEO of the company uh, had some interesting quote about, um, I can have a, oh, what was it? It was something like if, uh, in making this company, I can have a 80% shot of making 3 million a like twenty percent shot of making thirty million and a point one percent shot of making three hundred million, and he's like, "Which one am I going to go for?" Um, I mean, that 
<laughs> and he said, I, I went for the 80% shot to make 3 million. And, I, and, every, and everybody else got to as well. Yeah. Uh, and this company can continue and we can weather downturns because we're small. Um, listener, if this is another thing that you sort of find interesting, another book that you can read is Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. It's a great book. With the delightful um, subtitle of Economics as if People Matter. Isn't that good? Yeah. It's Does awesome. Drive a smart car? Uh, I don't know. Small is beautiful, Small probably. Is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but a, a similar kind of idea that um, a little tiny suitcase. Um, uh, that growth is not necessarily a good into and of itself um, when it comes to economics, because you can get you get to this point where it becomes this kind of absurd thing where um, it has an overweighted control over the community. Mm-hmm. Um, Small is Beautiful is also helpful because Schumacher is pushing back against there being only two categories of you are either socialist or you are capitalist. And that's kind of what Belloc's doing, right. too. Sure. And I haven't read Belloc. Um, or didn't you read Serval State? No, I you, lent you, it lent, to you. you lent it to me. I haven't read it yet. Oh. Sorry. It's only, oh, no, do no, you have it still? Yeah. I was looking for it. I've, I've only, oh, had, for like, I've it. only okay. had it for like a year and a half, so don't worry about <laughs> that. But I, I forget. I think he breaks. I think Schumacher breaks. Um, governments and economic models into, I think, eight different categories and essentially says you can pair these up in any way you want to. Um, anyway, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. So, um, Other criticisms of distributism are it um, kind of uh, doesn't provide a, a, as good an engine for innovation as what we have right now because um, it's essentially a conservative economics. We're trying to, mm-hmm. to keep communities in the way that they, and sort of, yeah, we're trying to, to keep people to be able to have a, a rational or to have a, a, a flow of life that is um, more predictable or more in, in the hands of the individual. And so then to, to create like a new Facebook that sort of explodes and takes over, Won't there's, there's less of a fertile ground for innovation. It would, it would prevent things like Tesla. Tesla could never replace all the cars on the planet because... There'd be five, you know, five people running the company, 20 people making the cars, yeah. and it just would never be large enough. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is when all of the workers are the owners, um, um, there's just studies that show that it's harder for those companies to weather changes in, in, the, in the economy. Yeah. So um, if, you know, um, jet fuel prices go up or go down, these companies can easily fire workers or can easily restructure their airlines. It's harder to do that when the owners and the workers are one because they get they get sort of voting rights. Yeah. Um, but there are there are examples of big co-ops, like co-ops that employ tens of thousands of people. So it's not just 15 people. There's one in Spain called, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like Mondragon or, I don't know. It's, oh. it's it was, um, um, it's this, Basically, it's a co-op, a giant co-op that employs um, like 70,000 people and it's in the Basque region of Spain. So it's also got this like um, ethnic um, um, localization to it that probably has helped it be um, cohesive. Mm. And if you work there, you are an owner of it and everybody gets a vote and they have some pretty sort of stringent voting rights and it's really – it's – um, you can still, you know, people can still get fired and companies can still go bankrupt. They, they, they own a bunch of different kinds of companies under this umbrella. And I don't know too much about it, but it's really fascinating. But it's kind of uh, in this model of, of this um, distributism. So, like, you work for that company, you're never going to have your boss say, hey, we've, we've, 
liquidated your position, and if you want to keep your job, you're moving to Seattle. Right. Right? And um, which is a very real thing that happens right now. And so you have then this unrootedness that um, the sort of the system that we have that we have brings. Um, but then there's also all of the benefits that the system brings, like all the innovation and AJ's dream of owning a Tesla and all these kinds of things. Yeah, so, so any, any large company that with high fixed costs, so I think of like a steel manufacturer or a car manufacturer is a good example too. You mm-hmm. need a larger scale to make that possible. Mm-hmm. But I guess there are also maybe banks are a category where you don't really need like anyway, the benefit of a large bank is the ability to get your cash anywhere for free. But yeah. outside of that, you don't really need a big bank. Yes. So, um, anyway, yeah. So, so it seems to me, I mean, I'm trying to work through this in my head, but isn't any specialization within a society or society itself, isn't that slavery under any other name? Like take, for example, the butcher. I don't know how the butcher does what he does. I still need his meat or I prefer to eat it. And so, I need wages in order to make that happen. Am I not a slave under under this guy's definition? No. Am I not a slave to the butcher? The really important, I don't have the means of doing it. The that. really important distinction he's making is as is is it works how it's working right now when everything is still relatively um, small and localized. But as things get bigger and bigger and bigger, you get to this absurd place where the, the, where it's enshrined into law that that these you know, these mega corporations that own everything need to employ everybody. That's that's the position that he's worried about, is that when we have um, the government or we have the 98% of the people saying, you need to take care of us because you have, you are the rich, you, you own the companies, you are the corporations, you have the means of how our lives work, and we will work for you, but you need to guarantee that we will not starve and die because if you stopped, we would. If you sort of turned off your company, uh, we would. And so then, you know, that 98% of people are going to turn to the legislative body and say, make them save us, <laughs> essentially. That's the problem he's concerned mm. about. He's not someone who's saying, like, um, um, paying your butcher to do something that you don't know how to do. Interdependence is, is bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's not saying that. Um, he says, uh, he, in fact, interdependence is very, very, very good until it gets so imbalanced that it becomes a different thing altogether. That's kind of his point, is that, um, um, so th- think, think of the land again with, mm-hmm. the, with the monasteries. Thomas, you were right. It, you, it, was, um, it was essentially the same bargain, but instead of you being beholden to a thousand different landowners, you were now beholden to 11. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point, the power that that one man wields to make a decision on his land can affect tens of thousands of people, mm-hmm. whereas the decision of one abbot is only going to affect like uh, a small village. So it's it's kind of that uh, idea is that as the thing gets more imbalanced, um, uh, you're going to have these. Um, uh, it's yeah, the imbalance is going to create a situation that is intolerable to vast amount of people, and they're going to demand some kind of solution. Yep. And Bellock says, you know. The solution is either say government, you take it over, and that's socialism, or it's going to say companies guarantee us things, and we'll sign on the dotted line, and that's essentially like wage slavery, or some kind of breaking up of of of, of the big back into the small, back into the distribute into the distribution. Um, 
And if we move sort of past Belloc, maybe the other idea would be some kind of technological advance that makes it easier for individual people to control their means of production. And I think the Internet's been like an example of that. So that means it's happened. I don't know. Because even with all these, I I like the argument of distributism. I like the argument of small um, companies Mm -hmm. and family-owned industries and things like that. Uh, but all those things are possible in a capitalist system also. Yes. The the gravitational pull is toward larger and larger. Mm-hmm. But it's still possible to structure your company essentially however you want to. I guess maybe the, 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 the thing that got me over the hump in tr- understanding Belloc is the, the idea that capitalism isn't so much a finished system as it is like Intermediary. a hallway right. that leads somewhere. Yeah. Um, and Unless you keep on building extensions to the hallway, that, which is but, kind of, which seems like what we're doing with our laws, but the right? only breaking way up to, monopolies and right. making ah, things small. But the only way to create things. extensions to the hallway is to allow things to fail. So here's the problem: if you don't allow things to fail and you don't allow innovation, so let's let's go back to 2008 uh, and and the big um, uh, you know the AIG meltdown or the you know the the uh, my dreadlock years. Crisis. Yeah, uh, your dreadlock years. Um, really? So for example, yeah. um, just out of college, good. AIG gets bailed out, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the big debate is, uh, and the reason for it was, if, AI, if AIG melted down, like, we would have been eating dog food in the streets. Like, this is essentially what people were saying. It was going to be Armageddon, the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And, of course, AIG was definitely making that argument. Mm-hmm. If we'd fail, America's dead. So we bailed it out, and AIG, and then people who were owning the other side of that trade lost lost their money or whatever. Um and it had to be paid out of taxes, but and, and it actually turned out to be good. Mm-hmm. But we never would, we never got any innovation that would have come if AIG had failed. And now we had basically like this forest fire that killed this old growth forest. We wouldn't have had any kinds of opportunities for innovation mm-hmm. for some sort of new insurance paradigm to take over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the argument: is that yes, we can kind of perpetuate uh, the hallway. Um, and by if we allow, um, if we allow sort of what is it? Now the metaphor is going to suck. If we allow like the failed hallways to crumble, or the, <laughs> or like, or we allow people to have offshoots of hallways. Uh-huh. If we don't do that because something gets too big for it to fail, um, and we're going to prop it up and prop it up because um, its destruction is is too unpalatable for whatever reason, um, then we are going to miss out on the innovation for changing these kinds of things. And you're just kicking the can down the line for when it becomes so intolerable that the vast majority of people say either government save us or companies take care of us. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of was sort of maybe what Belloc, Belloc's worry um, 100 years ago. Sure. Um, does this have anything to do, to do with the fact that Megby and I are moving to the woods and are oh. starting a farm. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, Maybe I mean, does. Kind of a little bit. But this was sort of where I wanted to end this on, is Belloc and Chesterton weren't idealists, and they weren't, we need to rip the system down and rebuild it in this image and, and work towards a sort of utopia, like how many sort of socialists are, and in, and in many ways how a lot of sort of libertarian free market thinkers are. Their idea was each individual person should take on the responsibility of trying to have as much control over their means of production as possible. And I think that's like the really good takeaway for Christians. I think that's the really good takeaway for um, for Christians who are already already predisposed to be a little skeptical of, you know, um, mammon and materialism and uh, 
and and kind of the um, the carrots and sticks that are that are given to us for how we take part in the system. I don't think it means that you remove yourself from the modern economy, although there are, I'm sure there are some Christians out there who do advocate for that. But I do think a little bit more of a little more thoughtfulness towards how I get my money, where my money goes to, and who that money benefits. I, I think that kind of thoughtfulness uh, needs to be something that is thought more, preached more on, and um, and uh, Christians should learn or should try to implement that subsidiary principle, and also think more about like um, um, having a little more control over their the way that they yeah their means of production, the way they can take care and, and raise their families, because right now the system is in very many ways, not one that's set up for the health of families. Mm. Uh, the, you know, that we talked about um, companies saying, oh, guess what, you're going to Seattle, and that's the only way you can keep your job, or you can quit, and you can look for something else here, good luck. That's a, that's a, that's a really disruptive thing for a family, but that's kind of like a, a pretty crappy trade to have to think about. Mm. You know, do I uproot and move to a new place so I can continue to have money? Or do I, you know, roll the dice and try to find something else here? That's a hard one that lots of families go through. And then also the other one being the goods of modern life are so expensive. Now we need two house, we need two incomes for this to happen. Um, and then that's, uh, as we, I think that's had a, um, a pretty predictable uh, um, strain on, fa- on modern family life. And, um, and in, what, in many ways, something that this school is trying to, be against because we're this university model. That's a whole other podcast. Um, anyway, so I, I don't know what the takeaway is. I think it's just more that that we as Christians need to be more thoughtful about our relationship to the modern system that we find ourselves in. And I'm not a scream for the hills, build our own community in the woods kind of guy, even though you are moving. <laughs> we're to moving the to the yeah. woods, yeah. Um, um, but um, but I think unthinkingly um, being a part of it is um, also kind of dangerous as well. Um, I don't know. I don't know what other takeaways. Any, I don't know. Any other thoughts? Most people should, I think people should develop a skill and then they should, it is beneficial to get some sort of training in the big company and then probably set out on your own. I think mm-hmm. most people should have an LLC, which I don't know if AJ has one for his DJing stuff. But like, I do not. Oh, well, this is awkward. Like most people should be, but I mean, it's uh, it's because I don't really need one. I can it's file taxes without yeah. it. Usually, it's more for like liability purposes. But right. any, like most pe- people should be developing a skill and then selling their own labor as opposed to selling it to a company. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with like all of the ideas of distributism. I think most of the th- the um, results are possible in a capitalist system. Yes, but the, the system does work against. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe it's more. He's worried that we kind of have like two strains of capitalism going yeah. at the same time. And when one strain um, gets big enough, it changes the game. And yeah. we have some kind of game-changing decision yeah. that makes the, the the possibilities of individual means of production labor impossible to do. And that's, and we were, so a second ago, we were talking about Etsy and the increased opportunity for freelancing, uh, for doing work on your own, you know, since the internet, since the growth of the internet. But I was pulling up numbers. If you compare the 90s to today, more a higher percentage of people work for large companies than did 15 years ago. So even as yeah. more opportunities are there, we're actually choosing the bigger companies. So here's an example. Let's say that that um, 
there's enough political movement behind Etsy and they say, you know what, Etsy, if you're going to have people on your platform, you need to provide those people health care. Right. And then Etsy says, we're, uh, we're a platform, we're not an employer. And it says, doesn't matter, lots of people are using this and they don't have their health care. And Etsy says, okay, if that's going to be they law, then right. we shut down and then Etsy goes away. So th- right. th- it's that kind of idea yeah. of the centralized power that yeah. I think uh, is uh, Belloc's worried about. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can catch us on Twitter at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And, you know, if you tweet, we will quote back. And then you can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. And check out our website at classicalstuff.net. There's a lot of, lot, I have to say classical like 14 times in yeah. that little outro. It's, it's our thing. Yeah. So I'm going to go be a farmer and okay. I hope you will yeah. too. Good. And I'll be growing rutabagas. Good. So stay out of the rutabaga market because I am going to charge, oh, it's just so much for oh, mine. Oh, man, so we much. didn't even get to talk about guilds. Anyway, whatever. Next time on Classical Stuff. <laughs> Next time on Classical Stuff. There's some few things we got wrong, but I'm too lazy to open the email right now. So you'll hear about those in a future podcast. Thanks. Oh, we got a lot wrong. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.